Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another edition of the Travel Royally podcast. Today, we're thrilled to have as our guest, Mr. Stephen Proctor. Now, if you don't know who Stephen is, he's been a writer his whole life, um, and the two books that he's written are simply remarkable. He served as a senior editor at the Baltimore Sun, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Houston Chronicle. He's a native of Maryland, and he attended and graduated from the American University in Washington, D.C., um, and later in life, he was awarded a journalism fellowship um, at Stanford University. Fortunately for us, he's an avid golfer, spent the last decade studying the history of our favorite game. And his first book was the award-winning Monarch of the Green. And his latest book is titled The Long Golden Afternoon. Um, he'll have a new podcast coming out, uh, not in the not too distant future called the Duffer's Literary Companion with our friend Jim Hartzell. Stephen, welcome to the Travel Royal and Podcast. It is great to be here, Jeff. I appreciate you having me. I'm glad that you're speaking loudly as the train goes by. Normally I would mute it while you're speaking, but I've got no control over that. That's okay. I live right next to a train stop myself, so you may hear it soon enough. You're over it from this end. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Stephen, you're known as a writer, so let's start there. What led you to want to become a writer in the first place? Well, that's a great question, Jeff. Uh, you know, I've always been a person that liked reading, and I think my mother noticed that. Uh, and very early, I think I might have been 13 or 12, uh, my mother put a book in my Christmas stocking called Harvest Poems by Carl Sandburg, uh, which I love that book so much. And I loved Carl Sandburg. And I just, what I loved about his poetry was how musical it sounded when you read it out loud. Uh, and so I, that just started a lifelong love affair with, with words. You know, I started becoming a complete poetry geek for like three years, wrote bad poetry, um, you know, took pictures of myself in the forest with the navy peacoat and a long rust colored uh, scarf wrapped around me looking romantically like a writer. So, you know, I um, then I, you know, I spent the rest of my life binge reading on, on whatever topic happened to uh, be the topic of the moment for me. Then it might be novels, might be chess, might be the history of thoroughbred horse racing or the history of golf. But it's always been the same. Just read, 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 read. Um, and I, so I've loved reading and writing my whole life. And I, you know, I was desperate to try to figure out a way to get a job somewhere where I worked with words and initially thought I would be a novelist or a poet, but it became pretty clear to me at the beginning that that wasn't going to happen. And so then I turned my attention to more practical things and ended up being a journalist, which was a, a wonderful career. And I was lucky enough during the course of that career to uh, get pointed in the direction of literary journalism. Uh, one of my editors just noticed a failed poet in me, I feel sure, and uh, pointed me in that direction. And that's what I did my fellowship in at Stanford was uh, short fiction with the idea of being able to use those same techniques to write true narrative stories. You, and this was later in life, right? Mm -hmm. Relatively speaking. Yeah, no, I, I did not actually even play golf until uh, now. I shouldn't say that when I was a child, a young kid, one of my best friends, his father played golf and he played golf. And we had one summer where we golfed together quite a bit um, at a, at a local course uh, where near where I lived in Maryland called Glendale. And, um, but I, I worked at a, in a meat room uh, as, as a, a, like a butcher. And so I got a hernia call, hauling in a side of beef 
from the truck uh, one, one day. And so then I, I couldn't play golf and I never actually got back to it again because I soon after that started college and I was really busy working on the college newspaper and other things. I never, never, ever got back to golf. And uh, when I was in my 40s, um, just turning 40, my wife was encouraging me to play golf uh, because so many of the other I had risen up by then to an executive level and all the other executives played golf. And I mostly went to the racetrack. I love horse racing. I still do. Um, and, uh, but, and then my publisher, who was also a horse racing nut, showed up in my office one day with a set of golf clubs and announced that I was taking up golf, uh, that we were going to start playing golf instead of going to the races and that he'd arranged for me to have lessons and this and that. And Oh, by the way, I owed him 150 bucks for the clubs. So, uh, that's how I got started. And, you know, like most people that play, I, I you may have already observed, I have something of an addictive personality. And so I was a I was a sitting duck for the game of golf and I was uh, very quickly addicted to it and to the stories of its history, which is just my natural inclination. When I start a thing that I think I'm going to like a lot is to start reading up on the history and just see how it got to be where it is. And that's something that hasn't stopped since then either, actually. Well, you spent a long time in the uh, newspaper business, obviously. What, what led you to write a, a book and now a second? You know, when I was, um, I moved to San Francisco in 1993 and became uh, one of the top editors there at the San Francisco Chronicle and eventually the managing editor. Uh, but it was pretty obvious to me, particularly there uh, in California, that the newspaper game, the way I loved it, was not going to survive the, the, the Internet, uh, that it was not going to be possible to do the type of work that attracted me to journalism with anything like the level of depth and excellence that you had in the years that it preceded that. Mm. And so I was, and also the more I got high up, the more I became the managing editor, you know, I increasingly was in charge of cutting the budget and laying off the staff. And so for the last several years of my career, that was one of my principal occupations was figuring out how to do as good a job of covering the community as was possible to do with a lot fewer people. And of course that wasn't, as much fun as, uh, you know, doing literary journalism and, and other sorts of things. So uh, I decided that I should start thinking about a different kind of writing life if I couldn't last until I was 65 as a newspaper editor, which, which was already a concern even then. Yeah. And so I just started, uh, I started reading about the history of golf because I decided that's, I'm gonna do some, I don't know what, but I'm gonna do golf history so, you know, me being me, I went and bought the Classics of Golf Library, the first thing, the 69 volume library, because mm -hmm. I knew that Herbert Warren Wind had selected those as the seminal works of golf. And I thought there's a great place to start. Just read all of those and see where that takes you. And that's what I did. Wow, that's fantastic. You know, back then, when you when you were working in newspapers, there were a lot of notable writers Um across all the various pages of a newspaper. I happened to live in Los Angeles um, in the 80s and 90s, and Jim Murray was, I couldn't wait to tear open the paper every morning and read Jim Murray. No, he is such a brilliant man. You know, my paper, the Baltimore Sun, was owned for many years by the Los Angeles Times, uh, known as the Times Mirror Corporation. Right. And so I had a lot of interaction with the, uh, with the executives of the Los Angeles Times. I didn't ever get to meet Mr. Murray, but, uh, 
he, I mean, he was obviously highly regarded in the industry as one of the great sports columnists at that newspaper or any newspaper. And, you know, in the days when uh, newspapers were thriving, there was quite a lot of brilliant work done in them. And I was lucky, very, very lucky to be part of some absolutely fabulous work, both of an investigative nature and of a storytelling nature. And it was an incredibly uh, exciting and fulfilling job in those days. And I would say you know, among, I have had a very, very lucky life. I have no complaints about my life of any kind, but among the, the few sadnesses of it was to watch the horrible decline and decimation of something that you had taken uh, so much joy from. And you felt, I think, I still do feel, contributed quite a lot to the communities uh, where I worked in terms of protecting their citizenry from fraudulent people and other sorts of things. Uh, and you felt proud of that. Uh, so it was tough watching that. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm a turn the page person. So when I decided to turn the page, I did my last day in journalism in October of 2013. And the next morning, I wrote the first chapter of the book about young Tommy. Excellent. Uh, so and I have never, you know, I've I've not looked back at the newspapers I've managed when I've left the papers I managed. I never read them again. Uh, I didn't want to spend my time agonizing over how I thought someone else was not doing it right or whatever you must inevitably think when you right. look back you once you were once in charge of. So, uh, you know, I just I'm a believer in turning the page and I went into golf. Uh, I leaned into the golf writing thing heavily and I've had a, gotten a great deal of joy out of it and a, and a wonderful retirement life out of being uh, the golf historian. Yeah. You know, I grew up in a city where we had two newspapers, a morning edition and an evening edition, right? I mean, that's how you know, my family got both, right? I mean, my dad would so read mine, the morning the Washington Post got... and the Washington Star, the same yeah. thing, exactly. And uh, I delivered both of them. I delivered the Post on my way to school and the Star on my way home. Wow. And uh, so I was uh, a newspaper guy very early, and I, I love newspapers. The front of the house, my living room now, and has for many, many years been decorated with famous front pages from the history of the Baltimore Sun, which is my true love and always and always will be. Yeah. Now, um, it, it seems to me, I seem to recall, I used to go to business quite, uh, to San Francisco quite a bit on business in the 80s and 90s. It wasn't the sports page of the Chronicle Green on the yes. paper? Yes, it, it, it was called the Sporting Green. Uh, for in the same way that a golf course was called a green in the ancient days. Yeah. So you played over the green, whatever it happened to be, whether it was a football green or a golf green or whatever. And the paper, you know, the, the Chronicle has always been a really highly quirky paper, like the city that it serves. Papers always reflect the city they serve. Right. So right. the feature section uh, was pink and the sports section was green. And, uh, in fact, the name of the feature section for some years, people in the town just referred to it as the pink. Did you see the pink today? And uh, same thing with the sporting green. At one point, you know, green paper is incredibly expensive and it doesn't reproduce images very well. And there's a lot of negatives about green paper. And at one point, um, the green paper was eliminated, as was the pink paper and just crushed the paper. The town hated it so much. And so I was there in an age when uh, the green paper was returned and to much, much joy in the city. So, yeah, yeah it's an individual quirky little paper, the Chronicle. Yeah. 
Well, I'll tell you what, let's let's uh, shift to your books. Let's talk about Monarch of the Green to start with, which is the story of golf's most dominant player, with all due respect to Tiger Woods. It's about young Tom Morris. How did that book come about? I mean, you talked a little bit about it, but. So I told you that I was binge reading books. Uh, one of the ones that I was reading was uh, To the Lynx Land by Michael Bamberg which Jim and I have both talked about quite a lot on our, uh, on that podcast we did with, with Randy, uh, uh, big Randy on the trap draw. Um, and Michael Wolf is there too. That book made me dying to go to Scotland. So I started figuring out, okay, I have to go and do a Scotland trip. Uh, so I started thinking about it. And of course, at, while I was doing research to figure out where I wanted to go, I come across Herbert Wynn's piece, North to the Links of Dornick from the New Yorker in 1964. So I decide, okay, so we're going to, me and my friend, Lee Horwich, who edited uh, this most recent book and came with me on that trip, um, he was in, worked with me at The Sun. He was a, he's a great newspaper himself. Um, I put us in the lottery for free tea times on the old course that September with the idea that if we could get a tea time at St. Andrews the following July, from there we could build the trip. And uh, so that was... Luckily for us, we, we were chosen. We got a tea time on a Monday morning in, uh, in July, mid-July. And uh, I think the Open was out, was in England that year. So it was, uh, you know, maybe that's part of why we got, I've never, I've been in that lottery a bunch of times since, and I've never once succeeded other than the first time. So yeah. maybe it had to be. We got there on a Sunday and we went touring around St. Andrews. And uh, one of the things that besides walking the old course and watching everybody have a picnic and all the things that are going on on the old course on a Sunday, which is just magical by itself and something as an American seeing for the first time, you're like, it's just such an eye opener as to what a different game golf is in Scotland and how it's like a birthright for Scottish citizens in a way that it never shall be in this country. But so that's just a huge eye opening day. And we, of course, then wandered up to the cathedral and I knew you know, I knew about old Tom and young Tom in the way that most people know about old right. Tom and young Tom. You'd heard of them. You knew they were famous old golfers and they won a bunch of opens a long time ago. And, uh, but when I saw his monument, I was just intensely struck by that. Uh, it's mm -hmm. like, I think it's, I don't know how tall it is, 12 or 13 feet. It's quite towers above you. Uh, Tommy's nearly life size in, in the carving of him standing over a putt. And uh, there's a wonderful quote on it. But the thing that that really got my attention as a writer and a storyteller was the inscription at the very bottom that said it was erected by 60 golfing societies. And so I dug into that a little bit that next couple of days there and realized that's all the golfing societies. That's every society. And, you know, obviously I'm, I'm well enough versed in the history of the world to know that in Victorian Britain, uh, it wasn't something rich people did on the regular was put up statues to working class people. Right. So right. it occurred to me that he must have had such an extraordinary life for all 60 golf clubs that existed to pitch in to build a monument to his memory. There's a reason that guys do that all through history. People have done it. And the reason is they don't want anybody to forget what they lived through and what they witnessed. Right. They want history to remember this kid who was obviously so extraordinary. And so then that was the moment I said, all right, now I know what the story is. I'm going to do a story about young Tommy. And the more I looked into it, the more I really felt like part of the reason that no one knew as more about him than they did was that 
it's a pretty big shadow, the shadow of his father. You know, his father lives so long and is so famous and does so much uh, that I feel like part of it is, you know, Tommy hadn't ever been considered outside the confines of his father, right. considered independently as a golfer. And the main, one of my main goals of that book was for it to be a book about Tommy. Obviously, it has to involve old Tom. I'm not saying that it can't involve old right. Tom, but I'm just, the focus is on bringing Tommy out by himself and let's look at Tommy and what he did for the game. Uh, and that was, that was what I set out to do. Well, you did it very well. It's a, the book is fantastic. I, I'd studied old, both old and young Tom. I've read books uh, and accounts of what their uh, exploits were. Um, I've walked the town and seen where they, where they lived, where their shop was, where or old Tom's shop was. Um, I actually stayed in a Airbnb in a town nearby called Darcy, where old Tom's wife was born. Ah, Agnes. In a farmhouse uh, that was magnificent, by the way. But, um, you know, for those people who are unfamiliar, tell our listeners just how good a golfer young Tom was. Young Tommy uh, had a lifetime winning percentage. One of the things that this is a nice story about my son. My son always reads my manuscripts for me because he's a wonderful critic. He doesn't golf much, but he's a great critic. And so he finished the Tommy book. He said, nice book and everything, but doesn't have any statistics. Sports fans like statistics. Haven't you figured out what his record is? And I said, uh, no, I haven't figured out what his record is. Uh, that would be some undertaking. And he said, well, you ought to undertake it. So I did that. It took me another year and a half, actually, <clears throat> to go back and document every single occasion on which I could find that Tommy competed in a professional event for substantive money. And it's sometimes a little difficult to figure out exactly where that line is. But I settled on 99 events that he participated, some of them for some matches for big money, some of them singles matches, some of them professional tournaments. His lifetime winning percentage across those events was 60%. You know, no golfer in history gets even remotely close to that. Now, obviously, smaller fields, et cetera, et cetera. But Tommy put up scores that were otherworldly. No other way to describe them than that. <coughs> in 1849, I mean, in 1870, when he won the belt at Presswick, Tommy went around in 149 strokes, which is boggles the mind. And right. it was very, very interesting to me recently. And I feel like it reinforced the point that I tried to make in the Tommy book <clears throat> when Presswick recreated the original 12-hole course. And they did it so lovingly and authentically that it was really quite like it was when Tommy played it. And a number of professionals went out and attempted to beat Tommy's opening score for the 12 holes of 47 and uh, with modern clubs and modern balls. And 14 clubs instead of the seven Tommy carried and, uh, you know, a modern three piece long distance ball instead of the rock hard gutty that he played with. And, uh, you know, not many of them got close. So I find it really, really fascinating evidence there that how well Tommy actually holds up all these years later over essentially the same ground. Uh, and, you know, obviously Tommy had some advantages of playing it all the time and this and that. But my goodness, that was impressive. Well, put, those, 
put those guys in a straitjacket of a suit and tie and street shoes and see how they play, right? Two of them played as a scramble, a two-person scramble wearing authentic period clothing. And uh, so then they, they each had a shot, obviously. So they had, you know, that's not the same as playing it yourself. Uh, but even they couldn't do it. Uh, they got really, really close. I think they lost by one shot uh, from the video I saw. But, uh, you know, the, the one of the pros who's quite a famous YouTube character, Rick Shields, he uh, he shot 53, uh, which doesn't beat any of Tommy's three scores uh, that year in the Open. Tommy shot 47, 51, 51. So, uh, you know, Tommy held up pretty, pretty well after all those years. And he, he was just an extraordinary player and uh, a great putter. One of the first, really, what I would call, uh, you know, modern players in the sense of he didn't have any use for maxims like uh, don't press. Uh, he just swung as hard as he could, whatever he swung at the ball. Consequences be damned. If it got in a bad spot, he would he actually got a kick out of that. And he got a kick out of the brilliance of his recovery. He was a lot like Seve Ballesteros in that way, in the sense of he knew no fear of any kind. And he always was 100% confident of ability to recover from whatever trouble uh, happened to be the result of this slashing swing I'm right about to take. Well, you, you write about, or you mentioned the fact that he won nearly 60% of the tournaments he entered. Um, and those included uh, singles um, and, and four balls as well. I wonder if his, what his record would have been if his father was a better putter. You know, a, a, a lot better in foursomes. I mean, yeah. uh, Harry Everard, who is one of the, you know, a contemporary of a friend of old Tom, member of the Royal and Ancient. He wrote quite a lot for the local newspapers in those days. And he said that the old Tom was never more than a drag on his son. Now, I, th I think that's actually a little tough on the old guy. You yeah. know, he was a pretty formidable golfer himself. And, uh, you know, a person who had a wonderful temperament for the game and you know, was not going to be a person uh, who ever funked. He did He did have a terrible problem with short putts for an extended period of his life. His own would, son would say, my father would be a great putter if the, yole, the hole was a yard closer. Uh, but uh, and, and there's a guy that was a member at the Royal and Ancient who was a character named James Wolf Murray, who uh, I think he played his rounds on a white horse, and he had a caddy for the horse and a caddy for the clubs. In any case... Um, he wrote a letter to Pret that was addressed to the Mister of Short Putts, Presswick, Scotland, uh, and it was delivered by the postman directly to Tom's door. So it was not unknown that Tom had trouble over the short ones. Well, I'll tell you what. You, we talked about how what a great golfer young Tom was. Old Tom was a, a wonderful golfer as well. And when he would have been playing in these matches, he would have been in his forties, which by today's standards would have been quite old and probably less competitive than he would have been when, when he was younger, obviously. But I find it fascinating when you he talk. He was in the 50s in their final match in 1875. Tom being oh. born in 1821 was 54 when wow. they beat the Parks at North Berwick on the day that Tommy's wife died. So, right. uh, you know, Tom was an older man. And the other thing is he had a million design projects going on. He was the keeper of the green at St. Andrews. Tommy only played golf. He didn't do other well, things. He had a family to support as well, and family issues come up. Right. And so, you know, he had a shop and all that. So he had a lot of distractions. So we got to be fair to old Tom there. Yeah. But what I found interesting, or the, a corollary perhaps, you talked about uh, the 60 clubs 
all 60 clubs erecting a monument in young Tom's honor. When you think about it, the reason there's an open championship was because, because Alan Robertson died and they needed to find, to name the person who is the best golfer. Right. Um, have you, from your research over time is, is how good was Alan Robertson and how good was he compared to young Tom? He was a very different sort of player than young Tommy in the sense that he played a type of golf that Scott's called Pocky. And Pocky is a, a word that means cunning in wit or strategy. So Alan was more a maneuver your ball around the hazards type of a player. He also had a, a fondness for really light golf clubs. And he tended not to be as strong on a golf course that wasn't as pristinely kept as St. Andrews always was. And, uh, so, for instance, when in the great match of 1849 against the Duns of Musselboro, Tom, uh, Allen is really struggling because North Berwick, where the final round took place, is a, was in those days a links that was either green or hazard. It wasn't a lot in between. And yeah. uh, he mm -hmm. wasn't as effective there. And somebody actually in the crowd shouted that we body in the red jacket can't even play golf. Uh, so, you know, he had his weaknesses. I don't think he would have been able to handle young Tommy. Uh, old Tom himself said many times, I could handle Allen, but never Tommy. And uh, so I, I don't think he was as good a golfer as Tommy. He was incredibly dominant in his own age. Right. And he was, as far as I can tell, never beaten in a foursome match, especially none with Tom himself. And he, um, he was so dominant that there was, a cad there was a competition. One of the very first tournaments of, that was regularly held was something that was held at St. Andrews where the members put up money for a competition among the caddies. They called it the inputs in the sense of members put in money. And Allen got barred from that competition just to give someone else a chance to win. Yeah. So there was a time when he was, he deserved the reputation he had as the best golfer of his age. Uh, although my own personal view is that when Willie Park came onto the scene in 1854, now Allen's only got five more years to live at that point. Um, um, you know, uh, I believe Willie would have beaten him if Allen would have accepted his challenge, which Allen would wow. not. Um, Willie put an ad in the national newspaper challenging specifically Allen Robertson or old Tom or anybody to a one-on-one -on -one match for a hundred pounds a side. And that's a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, Allen would not accept it because he felt that Willie needed to beat someone else before he took on the champion. Uh, so George Morris, Tom's brother, accepted, and Alan, Willie beat him so badly that George finally said, "For the love of God, man, just give me a half." And uh, you know, so it was not. not Decided <coughs> to defend his brother's honor, and he too got beat pretty good by Willie at his prime. Right then in the 1850s, I think my own personal view of it is that Willie was the best player alive at that particular moment. You know, uh, he never got to demonstrate that one-on-one -on -one against Alan Robertson. Uh, and, you know, Alan very justly didn't want to give up his crown lightly. And uh, so that's that's where I that's what I think, for whatever it's worth. Uh, well, there was quite a rivalry between the golfers of Musselboro, right, and the, the golfers from St. Andrews. Yes, there was, a, you know, a sporting rivalry. They were friends, you know, uh, Willie Park and Tom fought each other, you know, multiple, multiple times between – 1854 and 1882 and they had their last match tom's quite an old man then willie's not in very great health he, he his health didn't hold up as long as tom's and uh 
you know, but Willie always said, I like it best when I play against old Tom and, uh, you know, they, they uh, were rivals, but they were, they, it was not, it was a sporting rivalry, not a hostile rivalry, uh, in, in, except among fans. Now, obviously right. fans mm-hmm. are different than players and the well, fans we- also were, were very heated and, 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 uh, often. Well, there was a famous incident, wasn't it, at Muscleboro where old Tom yeah. walked off, dragged he young Tom off. With What him? happened was, in 1870, uh, they had one of their great matches, and it got a crowd at Muscleboro uh, where one of the legs took place. It would be San Andrews, Muscleboro, you know, North Barrick, usually those three, or Presswick, you might add in for a fourth. Uh, Tom, Tom was from St. Andrews, and Willie was from Muscleboro, so he always wanted neutral territory. And North Barrick very often functioned as as neutral territory in any case um at Musselboro, the fans were just tom was winning and uh they that was uh, nerves nerve-wracking for them they started crowding around him so badly that he couldn't take a shot people were kicking his ball in the gorse bushes uh and things of this nature and robert chambers who was uh, the uh, edinburgh journal editor and a very famous famous golfer was the referee of the match and he halted the match tom did not walk mm-hmm. off this is really critically important he halted the match because the crowd was too unruly to continue. Uh, what happened was they retired to the bar, which you naturally would do. They Mrs. went to Morgan's, Mrs. wasn't it? And in Mrs. Foreman's, you know, Tom was sitting there drinking a, a black strap. It was his favorite drink, stout and soda. And Willie, Willie refused to accept the decision that the game was being halted. He went and played the final six holes. Finished them in 22, by the way, which is pretty Incredible golf. Yeah. Um, the 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 judge the, the chambers had ordered that they return the following morning to let tempers cool and play out the final six holes. Tom came. He played out the six holes himself. He shot twenty six. By the way, not anywhere near as good as Willie's. Um, uh, and then Chambers awarded the um, tournament to Tom because he had followed what the judge what the referee said. Willie sued. Uh, it ended up in court. Uh, in the end, the match was nullified by the court and yeah. it was determined inconclusive and the stakes were returned. The way you did a big match then was there was a date by which you had to have your cash to the stakeholder. So a different, a, a wealthy person, a trustworthy wealthy person would be holding the stake and have charge of the stake. So the stake was never distributed, kept even because Willie immediately disputed Tom being awarded the thing. And then the stakes were not distributed in the end the court had them return the stakes to the original backers, which would be not Willie and Tom, but right. whoever was gambling on them. Right. Let me ask you a question. I want you to, what do you think about the comment that without old Tom as a golfer, there couldn't have been a young Tom golfer. In other words, without his dad's presence, and I don't mean just as a father, but, as a golfer and a gentleman and so forth. Well, I think there's probably a lot of truth in that, but there's all, it's also true that Tommy was a prodigy in a way that was probably not determined by his hair, his parent, parent, you know, Tommy played in his first public match when he was 13. And if you could see the picture of, him, which is on the back of that book, monitor of the green, look at his eyes and tell me, you don't think that's a fierce competitor. Right. You know, mm-hmm. he was a, he had uh, true gifts. Obviously, being the son of young Tom gave him incredible advantages in the game, uh, equipment, everything else. So that was huge. But I feel he would have made it one way or another. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Uh, would you agree that old Tom has had a far greater impact on the game of golf overall than young Tom? Yes. I don't think there's any disputing that. There is no person who has had a greater impact on the game of golf than old Tom Morris. And part of that is simply that old Tom Morris lives long enough to be a person who played with a feather ball and with the Haskell ball. And only, only old Tom lived that long. So he had this effect of bridging the generations of the game in a way that no one else was able to do. You know, Tom's, you know, young Tommy had a lot to do with the game becoming a spectator sport. And I would say he deserves the credit for it becoming a widely loved spectator sport, much more so than his father or Alan or anyone. Uh, but Tom is the person who helped to spread the game. He laid out golf courses, 75 golf courses all over Scotland and England uh, in the age when travel was not easy. He would get to very remote places like Dornick and Ashkernish, um, which those would have been unbelievably grueling journeys and make golf courses there. He also, you know, he was the font of wisdom in the game. So if you wanted a golf club professional for your club that you're just now starting in England or in the United States or in South America or in Australia, you were told to contact old Tom and he could recommend a man for you. And so not only did he recommend professionals all over the world, lay out golf courses, make clubs and balls, play championship golf, be the father of the greatest golfer the world had ever known. So, yes, he uh, he is the greatest and most influential person in the history of the game. And I don't think it's close. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I think I, I think the other thing that's interesting, there's a legacy. You know, with with old Tom and 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 people like uh, Donald Ross. Oh, my gosh. Yes. You know, Donald Ross was a. Uh, a young boy when Tom was brought out there to Dornick where he most many, many, many of your listeners may or may not know that, that uh, Donald Ross was born and raised in Dornick. And uh, there are a number of historians uh, who I've seen write that he actually followed Tom around when Tom was uh, creating the original design of Dornick. I don't know if that's, that's not documentably true that I'm aware of, but it makes perfect sense that he, he was really interested in golf as a young man, like, like every, every young man growing up in Scotland is. And um, so he, um, he definitely was sent to be an apprentice with Tom for a while, also with Robert Forgan, and then returned to Dornick and became the head golfer, head professional at Dornick before he moved to the United States uh, in 1899 and began laying out golf courses here. So old Tom had tremendous influence over a lot of architects. A.W. Tillinghast, C.B. McDonald learned his golf from old Tom played in foursomes with young Tommy uh, when uh, Tommy was at the absolute peak of his fame. And uh, so that experience obviously, uh, you know, had great influence over McDonald. I think the experience of old, the, the influence of old Tom is a lot more ubiquitous in the world of architecture than people uh, believe. Well, I agree a hundred percent. Let me ask um, one last question about that book, Monica, the green. You know, you did a lot of research, obviously. What's the most surprising thing you learned in doing that research? Oh, boy, that's a that's an excellent question. Well, I would say the most surprising thing is the astonishing winning percentage of young Tommy. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, I, was, I, I used to think Bobby Jones was the greatest golfer of all time. 
uh, and his winning percentage of major championships is uh, something in the 30s, which which was staggering to me. Right. But to see somebody win at, at the percentage that Tommy won, uh, it, you know, blows blows your mind. The the other yeah. thing is the three. The three on the first hole at Presswick in 1870. He opens that defense. He opens his campaign to win the belt by making a three on a 578-yard golf hole where 880 yards out from the tee, there's a swamp. You either need to go around, lay up short of, or carry. And nobody was going to carry that. Right. So, you know, he had to have hit the third shot from 180 or 200 yards, which is a long way in those days. And holds it. So, yeah, those were some things that made you stand up and say, oh, my gosh, this what manner of player is this? And it's, uh, you know, pretty, pretty spectacular in my view. Um, actually, I, I skipped a question that I, I, I now that I think about it. Young Tommy was a unique individual, not only as a golfer, but he was quite different from his contemporaries. Yes. Right? And this is something where you go back to the influence of his father. OK, because, we, you know. His father was obviously enormously well connected to because he was the lead partner in foursomes of some of the richest and most able men in, in Scotland. Um, those men, James Ogilvy Farley, most likely, uh, arranged for young Tommy to be accepted at the Air Academy, which is then and now one of the most prestigious schools in Scotland. So Tommy went to school beside the sons of the men that he would partner in foursomes on the after on the weekends. And uh, he, you know, he was very highly educated, much more so than any of the men of his own class. Yeah. The only person who was a rival to him in education was his best friend, not surprisingly, Davy Strath, who worked initially as a law clerk and had uh, also been educated beyond what most kids got, what most kids got, what old Tom got, what most people got was to go through uh, basically through sixth grade as, and then as leave school at the age of 12 uh, and know how to read and write mainly to read your Bible, which was the thing that you really needed to be able to read and to do sums, you know, to take care of your math. And um, you know, most, most Scots uh, were not educated beyond that level, working class Scots. So, and it was, you know, even in some of the caddies that Tommy associated with uh, at the beginning were not, uh, might not even have been that educated, right. but Tommy was enormously well-educated. Uh, and, you know, he, therefore he developed a different view of himself. He wasn't interested in the slightest. It, you know, first off, it's wise to keep in mind that everybody is really hard up for money and practically starving to death during the Victorian age. You know, the food is scarce, money is scarcer. Any person who has earning ability has to put it to work for the family. And that's why kids got out of school at the age of 12. They could do something. They could, collect seaweed and sell it. They could work as a caddy. They could put money in the family till and everyone needed to do that. You know, uh, Tommy's brothers worked in his dad's shop that put money in the till the way they could. But Tommy could make a lot of money playing golf way more than he could make making clubs or balls. Right. So Tommy did what his family needed him to do was go out and earn the most you could. And the way for him to do that was to be a golfer. And so he was the first professional golfer in that sense. He never caddied. I'm sure that it made him cringe when he saw his father stoop and tee up another man's ball. He was yeah. not about stuff like that. He had a different idea of his worth because of the schooling that his father insisted that he have. So you know then that his mother and father wanted him to become a man of a different kind. It was a huge expense for them to send him to that school compared to what 
they could have sent him to the Berg school for like a penny. And yeah. they, they spent, I think, I think I estimated in the book, 5% of their income, just sending them to school, oh. uh, which, which uh, was a big commitment. So it was obviously something that they were committed to for their, for their, uh, their oldest living son. Well, for those people listening who haven't read the book, Monica, the green, I highly recommend it. It's, if you've ever been to Scotland or if you want to go to Scotland, I, I consider it to be uh, an absolute primer to read before you go. So let's move on to the, the your new book, The Long Golden Afternoon. Admittedly, I haven't read it yet. I do have my copy. Yay. Handy. Um, and this uh, scene behind me is from the back uh, cover of that. And I recognize that immediately as being Presswick, but... Um, you can see that the gentleman, I don't, is that Freddie Tate playing out yes, of water? Over your head, standing on the steps, is John Ball. And down in the bunker is Freddie Tate. Um, golfers of the modern age might, may be shocked to realize that you did not get relief from uh, water, casual water, as we like to call it. Uh, that looks like rather formal water to me there. But uh, 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 the, um, you didn't get relief from that without penalty. So that is a painting that was done for me. Uh, I commissioned it because I originally was hoping that would be the cover of the book, but the, the publisher chose different images, uh, but at least it's on the back there. But I had it painted by a wonderful, wonderful woman uh, from England named Sandra Russell, who I just happened to, to see on social media. And there's an old picture of that scene, which is the seventh, the 35th hole of the 1999 amateur championship final at Presswick between Freddie Tate and Johnny Ball. There's an old picture of it in a book that John Lowe wrote about Fred Tate uh, called FG Tate, a record, but it's so fuzzy that you could never use that image for a cover. But I thought if I got a watercolor painting of it, maybe that could be used on the cover. And it did get used on the cover in this way. Uh, so uh, that's one of the great scenes in the whole book, one of the great matches in all of history, and that's why it's there. Well, you made a comment earlier that Alan Robertson didn't play well, typically outside of St. Andrews on courses that weren't as well manicured, which I found to be uh, amusing because in the photographs that I've seen of St. Andrews back when he would have been alive, um, you know, there were no rakes and bunkers. There were, yeah, I mean, you were playing out of you know, hoof prints and boot prints. Yeah, the, the turf was quite nice at St. Andrews and it wasn't always, uh, it could be quite heavy in some other places, you know, not as uh, tight to the ground as, as it was at St. Andrews. So places, some places like, like North Berwick in the beginning, not now, of course, it's much more manicured, but in those days, you know, the grass might be really thick and heavy in certain places because they didn't have mowers. You got to keep in mind that there was not a mower. It was a, uh, um, it was well, they had mowers, but they were on four legs. Yes, you, you know, the, it, it, in the, well, in Allen's time in the early 1850s, that was a, a little bit before people started, mowers were widely used. So uh, there would be much rougher conditions anyway. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, no, so he, his game didn't travel as well as, as others did. So how did this book come about? I mean, I, I imagine it came about as a result of, you do the research on Monarch of the Green and you, there's, you know, a body of research with interesting facts. Um, you know, I you know young Tom, young Tommy would go down by train to play matches at Blackheath and other places. He, my recollection is he almost took a job there as a professional, if I'm not mistaken, or was offered that position. 
He was a lot of places would love to have had him, but he, what they really wanted for him to come down at for a period of time and just play. Yeah. Tommy wasn't mm-hmm. going to be doing like green keeping or anything like that, but right. like that. He would, he might make arrangements with you to come and play with your members for a month if you wanted to pay him enough. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, Tommy had a, a lot of family ties down in England, uh, particularly at Hoylake, because Hoylake was founded in 1869. The original designer of the golf course was George Morris, the one that Willie had beaten so badly, Tom's brother. Uh, George's son, Jack, became the first and a very long time professional at Royal Liverpool. So they had really close ties to the Morris family. Uh, Royal Liverpool was one of the early clubs to start staging big tournaments for professionals with big money attached to them. And Tommy would go and play in those. And during the course of the research for the Tommy book, uh, I became aware of a tournament that, you know, that's written about in the book that happened in 1872 at Hoylake, where Tommy plays and Davy Strath play and all the leading golfers play. Tommy wins. And one of the people following the match is a 10 year old kid by the name of John Ball. And uh, I, so I, you know, you see the thread continuing on. Exactly. In years after that day, John Ball becomes the first Englishman and the first amateur to win the Open. But part of what happened as a research in the Tommy book, one of the things I was really trying to do with that was to put Tommy's accomplishments in the context of history. So it became necessary to continue researching forward, like what happened after Tommy. And the more I did that, the more I realized that it was a continuing story on, a, on multiple different levels and uh, that Tommy had played a pivotal role along with his dad in moving the game into England and that that was part of what continued it on to spread around the world. And, you know, it dawned on me that at one point it dawned on me that, you know, the gutty ball gets introduced in 1848 for the 400 years that preceded that golf was played in Scotland pretty much unchanged. You know, there was, you know, modest change, but extremely modest, hardly any change in clubs, hardly any change in rules, hardly any change in approach or attire or anything. And then in a 50 year period, well, you know, let's say 52 years by 1900, Harry Varden is touring America and the game is already worldwide. Right. So then I thought, you know, that's that in and of itself is, is the sequel. How yeah. does the game go from the rise of young Tommy in, in the 1850s to a worldwide game in a period of 50 years? And there are not that many worldwide games. So I decided that I'm going to do another book about this, uh, this what happens after, right. when I was about halfway through the Tommy book. And, uh, and so I kept on uh, gathering material for book number two, even as I was finishing up book number one. Well, there's some interesting connected dots going on here, in my mind anyway. When when you think about it, um, Stuart Maiden emigrated from Carnoustie um, to Atlanta, where I live, and um, was the pro at Eastlake. So there's a Scottish connection to um, Bobby Jones. And then Harry Varden tours the U.S. Um, as a child, Francis, we met, meets him. Um, I, I probably 10 years later, he beats him in the open champion or in the U S open. Um, I mean, it, it's interesting. The legacy, uh, it's like, I feel like it's Johnny Appleseed, these, uh, Scottish and, um, as it spread to England and then from England, it spread further. It, it's fascinating. 
You know, it is uh, one of the, the, the opening sentence of chapter two of that book, The Long Golden Afternoon, is golf came to England the same way it would nearly everywhere else through connections with the Scotsman. And that's more or less how it happened. Like Hoylake, for instance, was founded by a man named Glenmuir uh, Dowie. His last name was Dowie. He's a Scotsman. He had a lot of English merchant friends. So it was Scotsmen primarily or friends of Scotsmen. Royal, Saint, uh, Royal North Devon, founded in 1864, which is the first truly English club, gets founded by Isaac Gossett, whose who's, uh, brother-in-law is Captain Moncrief of St. Andrews and introduces but, the game of golf. And William Driscoll Gossett, who lived in Prestwick, met old Tom and brought old Tom down to lay out the golf course. So it all connects back to Scotsman in yeah. the final analysis. And yeah. it's really a great Scottish diaspora that spreads the game around the world. Exactly. Carnoustie alone, Stuart Maiden, you mentioned, Carnoustie alone, 400 men from Carnoustie went to, to golf courses around the world to become professionals, 280 some of them to the United States alone. So uh, it was that way that golf spread around the world was Scotsmen took it there. You know, Britain had a great um, empire, obviously. A lot of the major merchants were Scots. A yeah. lot of the leading military battalions were Scottish. The Black Watch that Freddie Tate belonged to. Those men, when they went to South Africa and they were stationed in South Africa for six months, the very first thing they did was find an open plot of land, dig some holes in it and start playing golf on it. So the game spread around the world really as much as a result of a Scottish diaspora as any other thing. Well, the same thing happened in Ireland. Uh, the Black Watch was in Southern Ireland, and I don't remember what course it is now. My, it's escaping me, but um, golf was planted there, at, at least at one popular course by the Black Watch. But it's fascinating to me how quickly um, it spread. I hadn't thought about that until you mentioned it, and I'm eager to dive into the book. But you're right, from, from um, the time of the feathery disappearing and the Haskell ball coming around in, in 1900, uh, the world of golf had changed dramatically. And as you say, perhaps more so than it had in the previous 400 plus years, which is just staggering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like it's a, it's, a, it's a change that's across the board. You know, you got to keep in mind that this is, of course, is at the height of the Industrial Revolution when these things are happening and right. progress is happening on all fronts very, very rapidly uh, in all sorts of technology. So the people who are running those companies, just as they do today, played golf. And all of them, in, en masse, people began applying their particular skill to the game of golf. Right. So agronomists, the, the, the making of seeds for grass, uh, the building of golf clubs, the creating of golf balls, everything simultaneously begins to see massive of improvement and obviously one of the big the big events is Englishmen fell in love with golf and England started building golf courses at a rate of a golf course a week literally yeah. uh, by the late 1890s and there's another book out about this period by a good friend of mine named Michael Morrison which documents in great detail uh, how the golf courses of England multiplied and where and under what circumstances it's not a storybook like the one that I wrote, but it's a great documented history book about the growth of golf clubs in England. And, you know, Michael's demonstrated some pretty interesting things like women's golf at some points in that period of the late 1890s, early 1900s was growing at a rate quite faster than men's golf. 
And uh, so the English really took up golf enthusiastically and partly because it was the Scottish national pastime. And the English liked nothing better than vanquishing at a Scot at their own game. And that became their driving ambition, like right from the beginning. The minute John Ball won in 1890, so many Englishmen took up the game with the idea of vanquishing the Scots. Even before John Ball won, there were Englishmen calling for a match between nations that, you know, Scotland didn't have anybody that could match up against Horace Hutchinson or Johnny Ball. And of course, you know, that didn't prove to be true, but that was a big motivating factor. And that's a big part of the story of the Long Golden Afternoon is that intense rivalry between Scotland and England for supremacy at the game. Yeah. Well, I, in the times I've been to Hoy Lake, it's, you can't uh, take a step without seeing um, John Ball's picture or clubs that he used or, um, but. I'm going to write a piece later this year for Through the Green, which is the magazine, the British Golf Collector Society, making the argument that John Ball is the single greatest golfer uh, that no one has ever heard of. And it's a shocking thing that he's so little known. John Ball is the winner of nine major championships. Nine. So uh, Well, he, he won eight British amateurs, right? That's just an absurdity. That yeah. One of them when he was 50. When Mickelson won his big thing and became the oldest championship golfer, it was John Ball that he passed. John Ball won the amateur uh, when he was 50 years old for the eighth time. Yeah. You know, yeah. to win the amateur, Bob Jones would tell you millions of times that the amateur is the hardest tournament to win. You have to win a series of singles matches, usually at least six, sometimes as many as seven, depending on how large the field is, before you win a 36-hole match. And anybody that plays match play golf on the regular knows that you can be beaten by an inferior player. If they just get hot for five or six or seven holes in a row, they can knock you off. And uh, Mm -hmm. not in a 36-hole match, which usually levels out the right way, uh, but in an 18-hole match. And that's what makes it so hard to win and so remarkable that he won it that many times. He has 99 victories in the amateur championship. Wow. He came out in his late, later years to try to win one more match, entered again to try to win one more match to get the 100. And uh, Darwin has such a romantic essay about the valiant effort. Uh, but then, you know, the years caught up to him and he couldn't quite, couldn't quite pull it off. But it was close. Well, you, obviously you did a lot of research on this book as well. And I have a similar question to what I asked about the other book. So you're doing all this research. Was there a time during your research where you uncovered something where you uttered to yourself, wow, I can't believe this. This is unbelievable. You know, uh, it it would be mostly about people that you hadn't that you think, oh, my God, how can this person who is so has such a wonderfully dramatic, fabulous life be unknown? And similarly, how when you think like now, if you think about the age of the long golden afternoon, I think most people would think of Harry Varden first and foremost, because Varden emerges as the second immortal after Tommy and the, and the great player. But I was reading Harold Hilton's memoir, uh, Reminiscences of, uh, of Golf, and um, it was astonished to learn that when Harold, when, when Varden won his first open, no fans followed, not one. Uh, he was playing with Hilton and Hilton recalls somebody walked up to me and said, who's that you're playing with? And he said, Oh, Harry Varden guy said, Oh, never heard of him. And, uh, you know, no one watched, you know, so it wasn't like Varden, you know, Varden was an unknown at the beginning and it wasn't until 
his amazing streak uh, of wins in 1898 and 1899 that he really was the, considered the top golfer in, in Britain. You know, John Henry Taylor before him was the person everyone followed. And right. so it just those kinds of things astonish you because you realize, you know, the truth is I know uh, the facts. I know that between them, Taylor, Varden and Braid won 16 opens, but I don't know the story. And I think that people who read The Long Golden Afternoon, even people who are knowledgeable, will learn a lot of things about that are fascinating about how the events unfolded and how surprising certain things were at the time that they occurred. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the characters. I, I have a collection of Pickery Clubs. And, uh, and, I, and I know you must feel the same way when you pick up an old Hickory and you're thinking, whose hands have been on this, right? Oh, like, yeah. how, how, how many great shots were hit with this was, I can just imagine it being transported in an, you know, horse-drawn carriage to a match or, you know, this, it, some of this is before they even, some of the clubs I have is before they had uh, golf bags. But I got, I got one that was made in, 1908 and i know specifically it was made in 1908 by a gentleman named ernest jones have you heard of him oh sure mm -hmm. you're the only person i've ever met who's heard of him so you're you've heard of his story and losing his leg in battle and coming out and shooting even par for the first nine holes you know standing on one leg walking on crutches and then you know having a uh a uh, moving to America and opening a a shop where he can give lessons in you know in, in the center of Manhattan and giving more lessons than anyone. Um, you know he's giving like five thousand lessons a year. I mean, and he specialized in women too. He uh, he has a great instructional book that I read uh, called I "Clubhead." Yeah, so. Yeah, no, I knew him mostly through the instructional book and uh, and the essay that Herbert Warren Wind wrote about him at the beginning of it. But uh, no, that you're right. That's such a, I have I play hickory golf. I play most of my rounds with hickory clubs now, and uh, I started that just because I felt it was necessary to understand the age that I was writing about to play with the uh, clubs that were older, and to 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 get a grasp of the degree of difficulty with those kinds of weapons and. I will say, in addition to that, you know, the story that goes with the club, which mine, I have two made by Robert Simpson, the great club maker of Carnoustie, and a bunch of them by Tom Stewart from St. Andrews. Uh, but like to, to when you hit a shot with the hickory brassy, let's say, when you hit a brassy from like 165 or 170 and it nestles up right against the flag, well, you feel like you're John Ball right there in that moment. And that's right. something that's up. I don't know. I get more joy out of a great shot with a hickory club than I do with the modern club for reasons that I, you know, it's probably because I'm crazy, but anyway, uh, I do find it to be that way. Yeah. So why do you believe that understanding and sharing the history of golf is so important? You know, I love that question, Jeff. And here's the thing I would suggest to you. You're, you're from the United States. You're a Braves fan, probably, as you live in Atlanta. There's uh, all the Braves fan. They know about their, the history of their team. They know about the great Braves players of old. The Yankee fans all know about Ruth and Gehrig and their statistics and what they, were, what they accomplished. And I have never quite understood why golf is not that way. 
uh, most golfers, even the great golfers I've known, people that devoted their whole lives to the game and became scratch players or plus players, uh, don't know a thing about the history of their game. And I've always found that curious. And uh, on one level, just a little depressing. So, you know, when I was in newspapers, I developed a particular skill for telling a story that's true in a way that's easy to grasp and easy to understand and easy to read and more fun than, than what you would call a history text. And I felt like that was the thing that I could bring to the writing of golf history was to take that skill that I developed over 34, five years of newspapering and apply it to telling true stories. And by, you know, obviously there have been wonderful books written about the history of golf that are what you would call historic novels, uh, where certain quotes and certain scenes are created by the author to, to establish the sort of drama that's necessary for, for that kind of tale. Right. And I guess, that I have is to create the same drama without having to, to invent anything, to simply find enough source material and have the experience and, and, and knack for telling it in, in a narrative way, in a way that still has quite a lot of drama, but doesn't require anything to be made up by me based on what I've learned. So I feel like that's important. I feel like it's important that golfers connect to their history. And I think there's just a lot of joy in understanding some of the amazing accomplishments that have occurred over the, you know, I don't know, the first competition in golf ever is held in 1744 for the silver club that you can go see at Muirfield today. And in all the years between 1744 and now, there've been some pretty amazing golf played. And I just think there's joy in knowing about that. And I'm trying to spread that joy around among average golfers. Uh, you know, not no average golfer is going to read a serious history uh, of the sort that you have to read to be able to write a book like this because they tend to be, it's work to read those books. They're, you know, they're written to establish truths, uh, not necessarily to tell a story. And brilliant as that is, they're hard to read. And I'm, I'm trying to create something that's easy to read. And that that is based that is based on intensive research. Well, mission accomplished. Well, thank you, Jeff. I appreciate that. It's uh, you know, it's been very f fulfilling to me to see so many average Joe golfers uh, finally uh, grasp Tommy's life and importance, and and in this book for people to start to understand about John Ball and Freddie Tate and. James Braid, some of the performances that they put on. James Braid, between 1900 and 1910, which is a 10-year period, he wins five Open Championships and four match play championships. So nine major championships in 10 years and uh, dominates both forms of the game, both stroke play and match play, in a way that's very seldom been equaled over the years since then. And that's something I think golfers should know about. And I'm, and I'm I'm very happy to see that um, these. And then he became have... a very he became a very uh, sought after golf course architect. Oh my gosh! Yes, he was. I still think Braid's still one of my favorite golf architects. I don't think I've ever had any more fun than I did playing Brora, which is one of his brilliant oh, creations. That's, that's just. I'll tell you what. You know, I, we took a group this summer, and um, none of us had played Cullen. Right. So we show up on a Sunday morning with a 920 tea time. They don't open till 10. 
So we can't get trolleys. So one of the guys decides, hey, let's, I don't want to lug my bag with 18, you know, with 14 clubs in it. Let's play a seven club match. Right. So we did. Steven, I don't think I ever had more fun playing golf. That course is just fun. I mean, oh my gosh, it's really fun. I mean, th those C stacks, you know, the, uh, here's the thing that I, that, that, that I marvel at. Of course, you know, they were always playing golf at Cullen, but they weren't using the C-stacks as the hazards. They were just playing in their shadow principally. And then Tom got there and like, no, 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 no. Here's what we want to do. These are the hazards. This is the natural feature of this landscape. And, you know, we're going to play over them. We're going to play to them. We're going to play around them. And, you know, that that course is just an absolute joyride. And yeah. the vibe of the place is so cool, too. You know, you got the food truck next door. Yeah. It seems like it's more of a surfer town. Uh, yeah. I loved Cullen. Absolutely loved Cullen. I played it with Hickory Clubs, uh, with uh, the proprietor of Jack White's shop and Gullen, Boris Lietzo, played his Hickories with me. Just one of the great golfing days I've had and one of the real highlights of my, of my summer here on the old Tom Morris Trail was Cullen. Well, we, uh, you know, I couldn't agree more. Our guys loved it. We we played another course that we hadn't played, and I can't believe I hadn't played it, not too far from Murray, and that's uh, Fort Rose and Rosemarkey, which was, have you played that? I have not. No, I, um, you know, I, this summer I got to play all the courses on the trail, so I did the ones that are right there, you know, Murray Old, like where you belong, and uh, a few others, but no, I haven't gotten there, but my friend Jim Hartzell, loves that course and and everyone i know that knows anything about scottish golf loves that course it's fantastic well we're glad i'm glad that you were able to play um uh murray and uh you know joe mcclemon's a friend of mine and i know he played with you and hosted you um we had him on the podcast not too long ago um, that's great you know joe is a wonderful man and i loved murray you know i grew up in annapolis uh, uh in near annapolis and so Blue Angels were so much a part of my lifetime. Uh, every spring we would have a party in the backyard and wait for the Blue Angels to fly over. It was a big deal. Uh, my, my little brother graduated from the Naval Academy. So I'm very attached to that sort of thing. And uh, so Joe and I and my friend Lee and, uh, and another historian from the club there, John was his name, and I'm not going to remember his last name, sadly. Anyway, uh, we were walking off the first year and we get like a flyover from the RAF base next door. And I just felt like a little burst of nostalgic joy there. Yeah. Uh, I thought Murray was a terrific golf course and I love the clubhouse. The clubhouse is so beautifully sited. Uh, right. We yeah. stayed in town and uh, that night across, literally across the street from the golf club. And um, we had dinner there at the club, but the most fun was just to get a pint and sit out front of the clubhouse and watch the sun go mm -hmm. down over the Covsey lighthouse there. Uh, Murray Firth is, very underestimated golfing territory all along, I thought. Uh, yeah. And that was one of my big surprises was the beauty of the Murray Firth when I did the trail. Um, I, I really fell in love with that area, and I, I would love to go back. back and I, Every course along, it was wonderful. Nairn, Tain, Murray, Cullen, yeah. all of them. That little, you know, that little, I just think if you're making a golf trip to Scotland, maybe you start in Dornick and you just play your way down the Murray Firth all the way to Cruden Bay. That's a pretty spectacular trip, and the weather's spec really nice there compared to other places. Yeah, I think uh, it's a shame that so many of the people that want to go over want to play the big name courses. And 
we had a I, I can tell you a quick story. We had uh, two gentlemen over this past September, and um, it's the worst time to be in St. Andrews if you want to play be, the old course anyway, because the RNA autumn meeting, autumn meeting, yeah. And then you've got at the end of the month you've got the uh, Dunhill Links Championship. So there was one day that they could apply for the ballot. I, I, we applied for them to get on the ballot. Um, they couldn't get on. Um, my partner got them on Panmure, right? So they go to Panmure. I text them, hey, did you enjoy Panmure? And they said, we're so grateful we didn't get on the old courts because we would have had them miss Panmure. It was the highlight of their trip. And it's for all those reasons that you talked about. It's not... There's the history there, but it's the friendliness of the club. Um, they played at the end of the day. There was no one else there. They had a drink and saw the sunset. Um, the whole thing, it's. I just think that people that go to Scotland trophy hunting are just making such a terrible mistake. And that, that was maybe my principal lesson from playing the old Tom Morris trail, to be honest, because uh, it includes so many places that you wouldn't necessarily stop if you were out for top 100 like Tame, like murray like dunbar like cullen all these courses dunbar was one that just blew yeah. me away you're just like you walk through the wall there from the third tee to the fourth tee and you just look around you and you're like oh my god this is the got to be the most spectacular stretch of links land there is and it's yeah. Anyway, it's just, you know, there's so many great experiences and, you know, the clubhouses at these places, that's just Scotsmen playing their game, loving their game on their home links. Yeah. And that's mm -hmm. where the real fun of Scotland is, is, is in places like those, to my mind. I love those places. Well, I, I appreciate the diversity of being able to go to Muirfield and wear a coat and tie and have a sit-down lunch, and then the next day go to Dunbar where you could play in jeans and a T-shirt practically. I love that diversity in, in our game. Um, I, I can't get enough of – but I'll tell you the other thing, though, Stephen. There was a time – it's probably 20 years ago. maybe Well, probably more than that, 25 years ago. No, 20 years ago. Um, we went to a, a big-name course, and it was me and my buddies. There's four of us. And we get out of our little run of land thinking we're going to have the, a great day. Right next to us pulls an enormous bus full of Americans. You know, 50-plus people. Don't take this the wrong way. Fat, ugly Americans. You know, they sound like they were from New Jersey. Not that that's a bad thing. What's it take to get a hot dog around here? Where's the cart barn? You know, and you're like, uh, you. I we wanted to pack up and leave. Like, I, I don't want to play. I don't even want to be associated with people that think the game of golf is about cigars and hot dogs and riding a cart. Where's the cart girl? And I mean, it was just horrific. Yeah, it's, you know, my favorite thing about golf in Scotland is that it's game the way it was meant to be played. Everyone walks. Yeah. You know, you can't use what they would call a buggy unless you have a note from your doctor that says you're too infirm to play golf the proper way, which is walking. Right. And uh, well, so going I to, love the fact that it's a walking game there. Going to a place like Dunbar, you're not going to run into a busload of Americans. So No, you're not. I've got two last questions. One, um, do you have plans for more books on golf? Yes. Uh, I am uh, going to write another book about the early history of women's golf. 
Uh, And uh, I feel like, um, well, I became incredibly fascinated with Joyce Weatherett and began there. I think of Joyce Weatherett as the greatest woman golfer uh, of all time. And uh, so the idea of this book would be that it would be built around the rivalry between her and Glenna Collette, which stretches out over a number of years. And uh, in that way, you can tell the story of the growth of golf in the United States, women's golf and the growth of women's golf in Britain, uh, leading up to their big final match, which would be the centerpiece of the book, the way the story will be told will be around this match that occurs in St. Andrews in 1929 for the English Ladies Championship that comes down to a 36-hole final between Glenna and Joyce. And uh, it becomes really a more poignant story from the British point of view uh, because at that time, Americans had already vanquished all the British male golfers. Uh, You know, 1920, George Duncan, the Scotsman, wins the Open, the first one after the war. 1921, Jock Hutchinson wins. He's born in Scotland, but he claims American citizenship and brings a trophy back to America, which is a very disconcerting event for his uh, mates in St. Andrews, where he was born. And then, you know, Hagen and Sarazen. And it's a long, long time. Uh, There's only one British win between 1923 and 1934. So at this time in 1929, there are no more Brits who are undefeatable by Americans except one. And that would be Joyce. Uh, Joyce had never lost to Glenna. And in the match, uh, it's Glenna comes out firing. I mean, like seriously firing. And so much so that Darwin writes an essay about the mood at lunchtime that's called ghastly, horrible, but true. And uh, but it, it's a very exciting match. And um, the, the end of it is is uh, is different than the beginning, let's say. So uh, that's where I'm going to go next. Do you know who the first woman was that was hired as a golf professional in a club? Meg Farquhar at Murray Old. Man, you uh, not only do you read a lot, you remember a lot. That's unbelievable. Yes. No, actually, I'm part of what I'm doing with these essays is to write little nuggets of history about the course that are interesting or in some way, sometimes cultural things that got nothing to do with the golf course. Uh, sometimes things about the golf course that are unique and, uh, one of the ones I, I, I'm looking at with the Murray Old story is Meg Farquhar because uh, not only did she um, did she get hired as the first woman golf uh, professional, but she also competed from the same tees uh, with men and uh, comported herself quite well. Uh, and then, of course, you know when she went back to uh, getting her amateur status and playing as an amateur, she was dominant amateur too in the whole north of Scotland there. So. A person, once again, that not one single golfer in all the world, except for you as a member of Murray Old and a reader of history, have ever heard of. But I'm going to bring her name to light because that people should know about that. People well, you and I are probably the only two Americans that know her name. but uh, So I can't play Stump the Band with you, obviously. It's a tough game to play with me, I'll tell you that. Because, I've uh, number one, I have a photographic memory. And number two, I've read almost as many golf books as you. Uh, so. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a game I'm good at. Stump stump the historian. So last question: When will the Duffers Literary Companion podcast be available, and how can people find you, and how can they buy your books? Okay, let's start with the former. How can they uh, the latter? How can they buy my books? If you live in Britain, you can buy my book in a bookstore, and I hope you do that uh, because I, I'm a big believer in bookstores, and one of the reasons I'm so proud to be published by Berlin Limited of Edinburgh is that Berlin uh, is an independent publisher that supports bookstores. 
So if you could buy my book in a bookstore, I'd love for you to do that. If you live in the United States, that's not doable. So you need to buy it either from Barnes and Noble online, which is at least a bookstore. And maybe if enough people buy it online, they might be inspired to put it in the store. I doubt that. Uh, or Amazon. Amazon sells it worldwide. And if you're in Europe or you're any place other than the United Kingdom, uh, you don't really have a choice but Amazon to get the book. So that's where it is. You know, if you're not published by a major American publishing house, as Jim Hartzell would tell you as well, you cannot get your book in an American bookstore. Not that many Americans frequent bookstores anymore the way that the Britain still does, but I still would like to be in a bookstore, but I'm not in the United States. So uh, as for the Duffer's Literary Companion, that is a work in progress. And Jim and I, um, we're, gonna, we're hoping to get it out uh, before spring, let's say. Uh, we do we have a number of things to iron out, both in terms of our own execution of the podcast, as well as, you know, lining up a place for the podcast to appear so that uh, we can, you know, not be shouting into the wilderness. So uh, we're, we're trying to stir up some excitement about it by letting people know that we're working on it. Uh, but it's still it's still a work in progress. I, I'm hoping, you know, and, uh, you know, sometime before before spring. Excellent. I had I put myself on mute. Of course, now while I'm, we're talking, you're talking at the lawn maintenance guys here with the floor outside of my office. But um, well, hopefully uh, for all of our guests that go to St. Andrews, they'll stop into the uh, local bookstore in St. Andrews. It'd be wonderful to see your book in the window. Of uh, As a matter of fact, I did see Monarch of the Green. I lived in St. Andrews. Um, 18 months ago for the summer and uh, we would ramble through the two bookstores in town and just, you know, plop yeah, down for hours. It was nice. They're both lovely bookstores, Toppings and Waterstones. And uh, when I was in St. Andrews in June, as part of that old Tom Morris trail trip, uh, both of the bookstores had a big display of books about golf in advance of the open. And I was proud to see both of my books uh, prominently displayed in their windows. And, uh, I stopped in at both places and signed all the books they had. So if they aren't already sold out, you can get a signed copy if you're in St. Andrews. And uh, Well, I, I hope they're it. signed out. I hope they're sold out. I do too. You know, obviously selling golf books is hard. So I'm always grateful uh, for opportunities like this to speak about them. But, you know, I didn't do it to make money. I just did it, as I said, to spread the love of the game and its story. And I feel so happy that, that that is happening, that, you know, more and more people are reading these books. And uh, and I think they're finding the kind of joy in it that I wanted them to find. And that makes me extremely happy and fulfilled. Excellent. Well, Stephen, thank you. You've been very gracious with your time with us today. We really appreciate you being here. We're literally thrilled to have you on. And uh, it's the first time I've seen your face. I, I'd recognize your voice anywhere from listening to you on uh uh, other social media, or excuse me, not social media, but on other podcasts. So thank you so much for being with us. Well, it was really fun, Jeff. Thanks a lot for having me. And I'm, I'm delighted to do it anytime you want. Excellent. Thanks very much. <laughs>